Hello, Lion Cook Nation. This is Ray DeLucci with the Lion Cook Thoughts Podcast. In this episode, I interview Lagusta Yearwood. Lagusta has been working for herself in the food arena since 2002. She employs 25 to 35 people with seasonal variability in New Paltz, New York, between two businesses. Lagusta's Luscious, a nationally recognized pioneering chocolate business with a focus on ethical confections and Lagusta's Luscious Commissary, a community-minded eco-cafe focusing on carefully sourced coffee and tea and a curated menu designed to utilize local produce. She also co-owns Confectionary, a retail confection shop in New York City's East Village. In 2019, Hatchet published her first cookbook, Sweet and Salty, The Art of Vegan Confections from Lagusta's Luscious. She has been a contributor to many publications, including The Guardian, and her chocolates, confections, and commitment to running a business with prominent ethics have been featured in local and national media. She has been a guest speaker at NYU, Vassar, Marist, SUNY, New Paltz, and other clubs and colleges. She has been named a rising star chef by Karen Page, author of the seminal text, The Flavor Bible. Um, I really enjoyed this episode because uh, she has a very unique uh, viewpoint on the industry in terms of caring for employees and trying to make, you know, great chocolate and do the best she can do uh, in the constraints of being vegan. But as we talk about in the episode, uh, that's not really a focus point in terms of highlighting. It's just about making good food. And I really enjoyed her, um, I guess, her idea of food, because in the end, what it's all about is really making something that tastes great and that someone wants and someone wants to purchase and you know, creating a good work environment and supporting your employees and your staff. And I really thought that, you know, the conversation we have in this podcast was so important. And I really hope a lot of chefs take away the message that she is sending out in the podcast and, you know, kind of work under her example, because I think she really is doing a great job. So uh, really excited. Thank you so much, Chef, for coming on. Thank you to everyone listening and for tuning into another episode. And here we go. How's it going, Chef? Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. I've been enjoying listening to your podcast. Thank you. Uh, um, if you want to just uh, begin by introducing yourself to the audience, that'd be great. Sure. Um, my name is Lagusta Yearwood, and um, it's funny. I used to call myself a chocolatier and then a chef, and now I'm just kind of more like a CEO, which is weird. <laughs> I'm <laughs> that weird thing where I, I can't stand up in the kitchen for like 12 hours anymore, and it's horrible. Um, but yeah, I own a, ch- a small chocolate business and a cafe in New Paltz, New York, and I have a retail chocolate shop in um, East Village of Manhattan. And that I, sh- I share that with my best friend, and she makes vegan macarons and um, beautiful pastries and things. So. Okay, awesome. Yeah, um, that's really cool. I mean, the idea of you know being a chef and then transitioning into a CEO, I think that'll be a good conversation to be had a little bit later on, because I'm definitely interested in that. Um, I know in your book, you talk a little bit about this idea of um, being having to manage other people. Uh, but oh. before we get into all of that, I would like to know where you're from and what food was like for you growing up. Oh, boy. Okay. <laughs> so funny. You just asked me before we started if there's anything I didn't want to talk about. And it, it's a weird topic for me because um, it's not that I don't want to talk about it, but I don't have much to say. Um, I'm from Arizona. <laughs> And I, I'm always so jealous whenever you read like chef biographies and profiles of chefs, it's like, my grandmother made me this, blah, blah, blah. And I have almost none of that. I have almost no food culture. Um, I grew up 
in very weird circumstances, my parents were hippies. Um, my mom was like a real feminist and really prided herself on not being able to cook. Um, and my dad was just a, a kind of junkie weirdo, um, is the truth. And uh, my mom is Jewish. My dad is not. So it was just kind of this blended family um, strange situation. And even my grandmother's really, my my dad's mom uh, lived in a trailer park and would cook kind of like um, just very American working class food, um, okay. like combining Kraft mac and cheese with a can of chili for Chili Mac. <laughs> that was like a big thing. So I think that, I feel like there's two kinds of chefs. There's ones who grew up loving food and loving the food of their family and want to kind of replicate that food. And then there's people who grew up to varying degrees hungry like literally hungry or hunger for something that they didn't have. And I feel like that's the kind of food person I am where I'm always kind of looking to be satisfied by something um, that I didn't really have growing up. So it's, it's a, it's interesting. <laughs> no, I definitely, I mean, I can totally relate to that. Uh, my mom and grandmother always cooked, um, you know, traditional food, but I, my grandma and grandpa were, were both like, Italian, but they, I had never had fresh pasta until I was like 18. You know, I never had that like childhood yeah. as well, where it was like, I mean, the, the closest thing I think to having that like, uh, really like close Italian food was when my grandfather made like Italian cookies around Christmas. Um, but like, I feel the same exact way. I mean, my, my grandma used to heat up mac and cheese in a box and, you know, frozen green beans or peas mm -hmm. and, you know, whatever. So I definitely can relate to that idea. Um, and the idea of wanting more uh, than what you grew up with in terms of food. Yeah. And it's funny then when then those things become nostalgic. Like for me, like that, like kind of craft mac and cheese is such a nostalgic feeling. So, yeah, it's very strange. I have a, I have a theory. Um, I didn't mention all my businesses are vegan. Um, I have a theory that vegans, a lot of people who are vegan kind of stopped eating meat and dairy when they were – I don't know if this is true anymore. I'm out of touch with modern veganism, but um, when they were like in their teens or early twenties, so they're both mm -hmm. kind of froze then. So there's this huge nostalgia factor in the vegan world for like, like craft mac and cheese and supermarket birthday cakes. And I think that it's really stifled the vegan culinary scene for decades. And <laughs> I feel it kind of hopefully moving beyond that now. And I like to think that hopefully that I'm on that trajectory of not just being stuck in nostalgia but yeah it's that, that could be a whole other topic like issues i have with the vegan food world <laughs> <laughs> no it's definitely interesting i mean i am not vegan my girlfriend is and you know there definitely are times Ooh. when we chat and she you know misses eat, she'll say she's like she misses eating certain things because you know that i feel i feel like that nostalgic factor does play a big part of it so yeah um, it's interesting yeah and you see whole vegan businesses that exist off of making really bad versions of mac and cheese. I don't know. I keep bringing up mac and cheese. I also, it's like the number one seller at my restaurant, so I shouldn't be hating on mac and cheese, but it's a, yeah, it's a hot button topic. <laughs> well, how do you make your mac and cheese? Well, ours is ridiculous. I wanted to make, um, I wanted to make a really good mac and cheese. <laughs> um, so I make like this, this, uh, I don't make it anymore, but I developed the recipe and we have amazing people in our, our place who make it. Um, it's a cashew bechamel sauce that's really labor intensive that is tons of sauteed onions, caramelized onions is like the base of it. Um, mm -hmm. Cashew butter. Um, it has all kinds of little tricks like smoked salt, um, 
smoked paprika. It's really funny. I haven't made it in so long, but it has like 20 ingredients, the, um, you know, and that's a baked casserole. Um, where we bake it for like 15 minutes in our little dinky oven. We top it with little crackers and um, and an aged uh, uh, cashew cheese that we grate on top. So it okay. doesn't have any cheese in the um, like the actual casserole itself. It's just on top. But I think mm. it we like the sauce that we make is super cheesy. It has like nutritional yeast, like all the all the little tricks. Um, and I, it's like, it's too heavy for me. I probably eat it like just when I want to like quality control test it. But, um, I don't know. It, it definitely is our number one seller all the time, which is really great. I'm glad that we're making like, hopefully, and I don't know, elevated version of that, of that staple. So yeah, it's good. I'm proud of it. <laughs> That's good to hear. Um, so getting into I guess you uh, decided to become vegan and I know you were an animal, you were big into animal rights. You obviously still are. Uh, but when I was reading your book, you know, I think you had stated you were the leader of one of the largest animal rights groups in the country. Am I not mistaken no. by that? Or, no, just or, Arizona, which is not. Or just much. the state. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Was, at that time in like 1996, there was, or like, it was like 1994, there it's it's like real um not that exciting there was like very few animal rights groups and the one in phoenix where i grew up um it was definitely the largest group in the state which is saying like nothing <laughs> but yeah but it was fun and i ran it for a couple years with my mom and um yeah it was it was a really good learning experience in nonprofit organizations and how they can be so uh, non-functional and also really fun and exciting. But I feel mm. like I got a little burnt out by like the nonprofit activist world by the time I was in college. So I've been trying since then to kind of search for a way to live my values in a way that makes, um, like, isn't so, I don't know, soul crushing to me. <laughs> and I kind mm. of found the food world because veganism is obviously centered on food. And um, ever since then, I mean, I counted this up the other day because I just turned 42. I've been vegan for like 27 years, which is ridiculous. Wow. <laughs> um, um, and yeah, ever since then, I've been trying to find ways to be really quiet about being vegan in a actually talking about it sense, but but letting my food and um, my like businesses speak speak for that. You know, I feel like no one really. The last thing anyone wants to hear is vegans yelling about why they're vegan. It's insufferable even to other vegans. It's the worst thing ever. But if you can just kind of like keep your head down and make really good food um, and show people that they're, you know, that, that they're not going to die if they don't eat animal products, I feel like that for me is where I fit in this, this world and it feels really good to me. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I was, I mean, I was talking about this, I think like two weeks ago where, you know, I was at a, we went out to a restaurant and it was like, it was, uh, I guess explained as an all vegan restaurant, which I, you know, would be good knowledge if you're a vegan, but it was like marketed that way. And I was, but the food was like really good. And I feel like it should have just been like, I, I don't know. I feel like it should have just been a good restaurant. Like to call it that, yeah. like I, I had no intention of being like, Oh, it was really good for being vegan. Like, no, it was like, like actually really, really good food. And I felt in my opinion, they should have marketed it in that way because it was a really, really solid dining experience. It's so funny that you say that because this is something that we talk a lot about a lot at work and I've really thought a lot about it for the past like decade that when I first started cooking, I never wanted to market anything as vegan. I hated the word vegan and I just really wanted to like trick people into eating vegan food and 
you know, serve something that was so good that people liked it no matter what. But now I feel like there's been this huge cultural shift and people, it's like a marketing term, you know, like plant-based. And it's such a weird thing that now, like we have the word vegan in our packaging really small and I definitely don't want to put it really huge on our packaging, but if I had my way, I wouldn't have it at all. It's just that, you know, vegans are like, I, I remember once some vegan accused me of being ashamed of being vegan because we weren't more like out about it. And I was like, no, this is my activism. Like, <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I feel like my whole goal in life is to make things that are not good for being vegan, but you know, just good. Um, so yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's really cool. I think it's a uh, terrific way to like build your business and kind of go after something like that. Um, I don't know. I, like I said, I just think I just think there's it's food, you know. I don't think it, everything has to be sectored off. I think if it's really good, it can stand with any other food, and it should just be left to that. But yeah, and know. I think that's a lot where our culture is moving. There's, I mean, you know, back when I started being vegan in Arizona in the '90s, it was just absolutely like cause for so much derision and you know being made fun of. And now it's just like, oh, cool, okay, <laughs> it's really amazing. I'm glad I'm yeah. <laughs> during these times. <laughs> Definitely. Um, so when did you start realizing you wanted to be in the food industry and you wanted to like work with chocolate or I guess what was that pathway like for you? Um, yeah, it was pretty random. I, after college, I wanted to go to NYU to study, like, I don't know, I got into the Gallatin school to study in the individualized school of study, um, to study like ecofeminist literary criticism, which was a thing I'd made up. Um, and then at the same time, when I saw how much NYU cost, I was like, maybe I won't do this. Maybe I won't put four years into studying poetry and becoming a professor. Um, so I decided to go to culinary school um, and I went to the Natural Gourmet, which is the school that is now closed. I think it's now part of like ICE or something. I don't know. Every culinary school has like changed names. I don't know. Um, so I went there in 2000 and um, it was good. It was not the most rigorous school, definitely. Um, but, and it wasn't vegan, but you could go there being vegan and it had a focus on like health supportive cooking. Um, and it, it was a really good base for me. I'm kind of an advocate of people not going to culinary school, um, because I feel like you can really learn everything without going to culinary school. Um, mm. for me, I love school, so it was a good decision for me. Um, and I really needed that confidence. It, this was like the height of like, um, kind of Anthony Bourdain had just come out with, um, what, I can't remember the name of his first book. I'm totally blanking. Kitchen Confidential. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm like, you know, it seemed like the whole chef world was just about like doing cocaine in the walk-in and like that world was, I really hated the idea of, and I was very intimidated by, and it was so masculine. And, um, I felt like I, I wouldn't have had the confidence to become a cook if, I'd only known that world. So it was good to go to culinary school and be like, okay, I know like the mother sauces, you know, and have that kind of basis. Um, but yeah. So then after that, I was doing savory cooking for a while. Um, and then it's just so weird. I, I really loved Martha Stewart. I still do. I'm not ashamed. <laughs> and, um, one Christmas, like she had an article, like she wrote the whole magazine. Um, there was an article in Martha Stewart Living about chocolate truffles and I just decided to try to make vegan truffles as like Christmas Hanukkah presents for everyone in my life and um made those truffles and then and it's so gross when I think about it now I made them instead of cream or butter for the ganache I used like soy creamer <laughs> 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 even like a little little 
half pint thing. It was so like, so processed and gross. Um, that's not what we use now. <laughs> so yeah. And then I just started making chocolates and I realized that I love small, precise things like, like the chocolate world. It's so, it's so beautiful to me that like, we have a very, very small operation. It's like 2000 square feet, but we can hold, I mean, like 200 chocolates fit on a sheet tray or something. It's, you know, it's very pleasing to me how many, um, like just the scale of everything. So I yeah. keep doing that. And, um, and just sort of trying to have like bringing my politics to that and kind of growing that side of the business more and more. And then, um, then I opened, uh, then I started shipping chocolates and, um, then I started open the brick and mortar shop in 2011. So yeah, it's been a long awesome. time. <laughs> <laughs> it's been quite a journey. Um, and so I guess when did, cause I know a big part of your work is, you know, the ethical idea of using chocolate, when did you start to realize that chocolate could be harmful to other people in terms of where it's sourced and how it's, you know, brought to your restaurant? Well, that's a really good question. I feel like, um, I mean, I feel like I've always tried to really center my cooking in politics and I've tried to always do lots of research on the ingredients that I use. And like for me, because I started out with this activist background, that's something I very consciously chose to do from the start. So, okay. um, and I wonder if my culinary school, like if they talked about that, I feel like they might have. Um, but I feel like just from being in the activist world, it was very, um, you know, that's kind of why I wanted to work with chocolate because I wanted to show one that you can make something vegan. That's really decadent and really rich and like luxurious. Um, that doesn't taste like vegan. Um, and then the other one was that I want the other, thing that really attracted me to it was that I wanted to make this product that has been such a site of like political injustices and make it in an ethical way. Um, so yeah, I started researching that pretty early on, um, and trying to like source good chocolate and it's been a really long journey. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Well, I'd love to get into it. I mean, what are, so I, to start, I guess, what are the ethical issues faced with chocolate? Sure. Um, there are a lot. Um, the main ethical, I feel really weird, like saying the word slavery off right off the bat, but that's the main ethical issue with chocolate that they, it's associated with like the worst forms of, um, like child labor, human trafficking and slavery. And it's, it's, it sounds, you know, like I'm being just a radical lefty here but no i read some quote once that said no study ever done on chocolate production in west africa which is where the worst um human rights abuses occur has ever shown um like forced labor not to have occurred like no one disputes this which is wild to me like hershey's mars nestle every single one of the big three those are like the big three chocolate companies they all not only don't dispute this, but they don't dispute that it's happening in their chocolate. So like, it's just wild to me that people buying Hershey bars, Hershey itself is like, yes, unpaid child labor in Africa is what brought you this Hershey bar. It's, I don't feel like there's many other, um, like, you know, there's a lot of ethical issues with food. I mean, in the U S there, you know, I read this book about fruit, um, harvesting in the U S where, I don't think the word slavery would be inaccurate to use for some forms of really bad um, um, fruit harvesting here, like in Florida and California. But I don't think that any of these companies, the companies are coming out and saying, yes, that is true. 
but in chocolate, mm. it's such a, it's, I think it was around 2005, maybe when all the chocolate companies were like, okay, yeah, we admit this is happening and they have been trying to work on it. And I want to say that, like, I do think that the big chocolate companies are working on it and I do think it's getting better all the time. Um, I mean, purely because of market forces and people being more aware of it and, and raising, you know, raising the issue. Um, but yeah, it's, it's pretty wild. I mean, there's a lot of child labor, um, children working for tiny, either tiny amounts, um, and not going to school and obviously being children and harvesting cacao. Um, and then there's also a lot of child, um, trafficking where, um, children are coerced to work without pay. So it's pretty wild. Um, the group that I really like is Food Empowerment Project. Um, they're a really, a really great group that like if you Google them and that and um, chocolate, you can read a lot about. They have a really good list of like approved companies and not approved companies. Um, and yeah, so because of that, um, like we buy all of our chocolate from Peru and Ecuador. I think right now we're using only Ecuadorian chocolate. Um, but yeah, and it's kind of a weird thing for me because I would love to buy chocolate. This is like, maybe I think my next goal for my business is to like, I would love to go to Africa and kind of source, um, groups or like collaboratives or farmers that are doing chocolate right in Africa, because I feel like it's kind of sad to be like, Oh, we'll we'll just never buy chocolate from Africa because what about the people who are trying to do great things there? You know, and yeah. so for my customers who are really political, if like people will come in and be like, where's your chocolate source from? And if we were to say Africa, they would just walk out, you know, because we have really political customers. Um, so like one thing that I really strive to talk about with my business is that things are so much more complicated. And I'm sure you, you know, know this from being in the food world too. Everything is much more complicated than you'd think. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think the answer is just buying organic and fair trade chocolate. That it's, it's like vastly um, a more difficult issue because sometimes the fair trade label is just basically bought. Um, you know, I have a lot of problems with like, um, labeling and just like slapping the organic label on things and saying that's fine because even with like the USDA organic program, there's a lot of things allowed that I don't think are great for farmers and for produce. And, you know, so basically I'm just trying to like do my own research and, um, figure things out for myself, which a lot of times means like the chocolate that we use right now, it's not fair trade certified. And I've, well, should I explain fair trade? <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. If you want to, if you want it real quick, of course. Yeah, sure. I mean, um, there's a really, really good book called bitter chocolate by Carol off. Um, it's super awesome. Anyone who works with chocolate should definitely read this book. Um, I read it because I kind of thought honestly that it would be, I remember it was, I read it like on the beach on a vacation after like the busiest um, Christmas season we'd ever had, which is like the craziest time of year for us. And I kind of thought it would be like patting me on the back for all my good ethical choices of buying ethical chocolate. And it blew my mind. It was basically about how the fair trade label was basically created to ensure that customers knew that they were getting, it was basically created for chocolate, um, that customers knew that they were getting something that didn't have forms of um, like human rights abuses. Um, and basically organic is for like um, earth and, you know, things that are that are not pesticides and more healthy for you. And then fair trade is supposed to be for the human side of that. Um, but basically this talked about how corrupt it's been and how um, it's 
really, I mean, and sometimes it can be good and sometimes it can mean almost nothing. So I don't know. It was wild. It kind of put me on a journey of, at that time we were using an organic and fair trade chocolate. And I started doing a lot more research into the company that we were using. And I, I don't think they're bad or anything, but I, I would, I just wanted to switch companies to one that was more actively, um, kind of sharing my values. Um, so I actually, it's, it's really kind of funny. This is a very not me thing. I was actually like kind of courted by, um, Republica del Cacao, um, which is a really great small chocolate company based in Ecuador. Um, I don't know how small they are. Now they're owned by Valrona. Um, but, um, uh, they took me on a sourcing trip, um, to Ecuador and it was so amazing. And I really, don't think there's any way, you know, we were with the, the head of the company for a lot of the time. I, I don't think there's any way that they were like hiding a lot of uh, human rights violations, which really they're really, Ecuador is not a site of like um, bad chocolate usually. Um, yeah. It was a really great trip and I'm really glad I got to see like where um, our cacao is grown and where it's produced and talk to the farmers and the sugar in it. We went to the um, sugar plantations and it, it was really beautiful. I really, um, that had been something I'd been wanting to do is like actually see where this product comes from. Cause you know, we're all about these days, like local produce and supporting local farmers. And for me having a chocolate business, it's really weird that the main ingredient we use comes from, you know, halfway around the world. Um, so yeah. Okay. I mean, is there, you know, getting to this idea of where the chocolate comes from in terms of country, is there like a, I guess, quality difference between like Ecuadorian and chocolate from Africa and, or taste wise or like, yeah. what are your thoughts? on it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the one thing that, I mean, I should say here that we're um, chocolatiers, we're not chocolate makers. And, you know, I really love the like American craft chocolate movement. I think it's really beautiful. And there's so many small companies, sometimes just like one or two people importing beans and almost always it's done in really ethical ways, which is really beautiful. Um, we have a great company right near me, Fruition, which has gotten like so many accolades recently, and they're really, really beautiful chocolates. Um, and they like import everything, and they make a lot of a lot of the bean to bar companies make a lot of like single origin um, chocolates, where you really taste like the expression of the bean. Um, yeah. For me, I am much. That's as much as I admire it. I'm not interested in it at all. <laughs> like I'm really more about the pastry chef side and working with the flavors in um, like working with my own flavors in the chocolate, like what am I trying to say? Not in the chocolates, but putting in the chocolates, like making bonbons and caramels and, you know, adding other flavors and using local produce and things in that way and local fruit. Um, So for us, we just really need like a really great tasting blend um, and something that doesn't have a lot of variations because we don't want our, you know, caramels to taste one different one week to the next. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, there's definitely are a lot of flavor differences for me. I'm much more like what is a good kind of like middle of the road, not too bitter, not too sweet, um, pleasing flavor, you know, kind of, kind of basic and Republica del Cacao, they have a lot of really cool, um, like, it really interesting flavors in their chocolates. Um, but the one that we use is like a mix of different, um, Ecuadorian chocolates. So it's kind of has like a very consistent flavor. That's, it's really nice. Okay. And you said you don't want it too bitter or too sweet. Um, is that just personal preference or does it, do you find it harder to kind of make those 
uh, different chocolates or bonbons with different flavors if it's too far leading to one side or the other. Yeah, totally. We do have a couple chocolates that we make with um, chocolates that are more bitter. Um, but yeah, I like I kind of started out in life not really liking just chocolate. So I don't love like the really high percentage, um, like two ingredient, um, you know, chocolate bars that are like, here's your 99% bar with no emulsifier. It's, <laughs> it's not my thing. Um, so yeah, I'm like, I just like candy. So I feel like I'm always trying to like ground our, our flavors in like a, a candy flavor, but, um, but to use more interesting ingredients. So yeah, our chocolate's around like 65% and it, it's kind of like a sweet 65%. It has a really nice, um, like very chocolatey flavor. Um, you know, like I, I'm really not in love with like very, I feel like there's a lot of chocolates out there that are very acidic. Um, and it's just not like our style. Um, so yeah, it's kind of okay. like coffee, right? I feel like if you have a single origin coffee bean, it's a, like a lighter, um, like a lighter flavor that can taste a little more acidic. And, um, yeah. And I, I just prefer a blend. <laughs> okay. <Basically. Awesome. laughs> um, is, so the next topic I kind of wanted to get into or something that's been on my mind, you know, cause I know you have a whole book out on different recipes and whatnot. Um, how do you go about like deciding what flavors you're going to put into your chocolate? And is it challenging to kind of get like say an orange flavor or a, a certain type of flavor into the chocolate to where it tastes good, but you can still taste the chocolate? Like what's that, pro- what is that process like for you in terms of tasting and trying to get that balance? I love this question. <laughs> um, yeah, it's really hard. And um I really, my thing is that I love savory flavors. As much as I like candy, I like weird, like my favorite thing we make is this um, chipotle caramelized onion caramel with no chocolate. It's just like a wrapped caramel. Um, And like, I love things like that. So I'm always trying, in the beginning, I used a ton more extracts than I do now. Now we're trying to like just phase out extracts altogether, which is really hard um, when you're making caramel because it's hard to just shove a lot of, you know, like rosemary in a caramel, it'll crystallize it or make the texture weird. Um, but we're really trying to like focus more on the actual flavor of the thing. Um, we do use some more like, like I would prefer to use like lemon oil instead of lemon extract. Um, and just like the, you know, the real flavor of the thing. Um, and even vanilla we're trying, well, also cause vanilla is so expensive. Um, we're trying to use less vanilla so that you really taste the actual, like the flavor shines through of the ingredients that we're using instead of just like a bland kind of vanilla um, candy flavor. Um, but yeah, it's, it's always a challenge. I actually think that we have an advantage in this in being vegan because I have this theory that people who eat dairy don't realize how much dairy has a flavor. And they think that like vanilla ice cream, a couple of years ago, I accidentally tasted this non-vegan vanilla ice cream. And I was like, that doesn't taste like vanilla. That tastes like milk. (laughs) You know, and I think that people don't realize how much flavor butter has and how much flavor cream has. And for us, we use um, this really good, um, really ethical coconut oil and coconut milk. And I use that on purpose because with the high heat temperatures that we go to, it, you don't taste the coconut. Like, and we use a deodorized coconut oil, which is like a little more um, processed, but I don't really like that like raw coconut oil where it tastes super coconutty. Um, yeah. I just want like a neutral oil. 
And I feel like people who aren't vegan, you know, they always use butter for caramels. And then what you taste is butter. So you have to really work hard to like overcome that flavor to, um, to taste whatever flavor you're adding. But I feel like with us, you don't like not one, even if we make a vanilla caramel, not one person is like, oh, this tastes like coconut. Um, you know, you really, that flavor kind of goes to the background and it's interesting. There's this company now, Cocomels, um, and they're really cool. I like their stuff a lot and they use coconut milk and coconut oil, but they really put the coconut flavor to the forefront. And I feel okay. like they're like our like anti slash sister where they're doing the exact opposite of what we're doing, but it tastes great. It's just like a coconut flavor. Um, so yeah. So that's something that we, we talk about a lot is like, how do you really get those flavors in there? Cause I hate it so much when you'll read the description of something, even just like a dish in a restaurant and it has like 80 flavors and then you come and it's just like, there's a drop of everything and you don't taste anything. So, yeah. Okay. I mean, that definitely is interesting. The idea of like, you know, someone like me not knowing how much cream or milk could affect the taste of something. Um, I mean, it's so when, for example, when people come in, who do eat dairy, what do they say about your chocolate? I mean, do they notice, like, if you were to give them a caramel, what's their reception been from them? Man, this would be a really good, um, like, social media thing to do, like, a, like, surprise of people and ask them <laughs> if they know that it's vegan, because I know that, like, um, I'm thinking of one of our long-term customers that has been coming in since day one to our shop. She doesn't give a crap about things being vegan. She just likes our stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. and she always, you know, she buys them for gifts and for everything. And, um, oh, my dog is sleep barking right now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and she, um, you know, I've heard her say like, I don't care that it's vegan. It doesn't taste any different to me, except that it's really good. Um, and I think that's how most of our customers feel. I would say that it's weird with the vegan market because vegans are really, really loyal. Um, so we definitely have vegan customers who obviously buy our stuff because it's vegan, but we also have so many customers who just buy our stuff because they like it. Um, and especially in our town where, you know, there's not a lot of options for like organic chocolates. Um, so yeah. That's cool. Uh, yeah. It's just interesting. And no, I think that'd be a cool uh, social media thing to do a video. Yeah, totally. Um, so I want to get into the idea of you running multiple businesses. When did you first open your first shop and what is it like, how did it kind of evolve into what you own now? Man, it's been ridiculous. Um, <laughs> I'm watching my boyfriend right now. He's launching a company and he's my age and he's just doing all the things that you should do. And it's making me realize like how, I mean, I've always realized this, how I had no business plan, no startup capital, no idea. I, everything evolved really, really slowly, which in retrospect was great for me because, you know, whenever you're starting a business, you make so many mistakes along the way. And if you have money, you're just going to waste so much money making all those mistakes. So because I didn't have money when I made a million mistakes, it wasn't catastrophic. So moral (laughs) story is never have money. Um, But yeah, I just, I literally just wanted to work alone and work myself Um, and then, you know, I started realizing little by little how, um, like I couldn't do everything alone. So I would slowly have an employee here, um, and like kind of very, very grew like so incrementally in that way. Um, and then I just wanted to, the chocolate shop part came about 
it's ridiculous to think of how naive I was um, because I just wanted to own a, a building that I could make chocolates in. So I looked for this building that was the cheapest one in my whole town. It was like uh, for being foreclosed from the bank. So I was like, okay, maybe I can afford this building. It took like a year to buy it. And then, um, I had one employee, Marisa, who's now my co-owner with our shop in the city. Um, and she and I were just like, okay, we'll be there. We'll be making chocolates. Maybe sometime we'll set up like a little shop area so that someone could come by and we'll like wash our hands and sell them like one truffle. Um, and then, because we were just figured that we would ship everything. Um, but it's become like a real, I mean, in retrospect, it's like, yeah, it was a chocolate shop. People like chocolate. People came to it. Um, so, yeah, it took me a couple months just to even realize, like, oh, this is actually a local business. And I have to, like, have chairs and have, like, hot chocolate, you know, and things that people wanted. Um, so, yeah, basically, I'm just incredibly dumb about business. And uh, now, though, I'm getting, like, exponentially smarter because I've committed myself to just running the businesses instead of working in production which is really strange and often um, terrible because <laughs> I miss cooking. But I, I really like it too because now it's more about I'm really committed to my employees and I'm really trying to like, I've kind of shifted my ethics. Like I've kind of figured out, I don't want to say that because that's not true, but I've worked hard to try to get somewhere with the ethics of the ingredients we use. So now yeah. I'm trying to shift toward running an ethical business in terms of my actual employees. Like can I give them health insurance? Can I, you know, give them salaries? And that's the kind of stuff that now I'm like super into. And I'm sure, you know, the food world is so broken when it comes to things like that. So mm -hmm. I haven't figured out any huge revelations, but I'm trying to like chip my way to something. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, you know, it's a big discussion I have with cooks uh, on the Instagram. I mean, cause I just say the Instagram is a most busy social media site I run, yeah. Um, you know, apart from Facebook and Twitter and all that, but um, it's it's the most uh, discussed topic I think is the idea of support for cooks and it's you know, so bad. It is bad, and I mean there are a lot. I mean, not to say there are no groups out there. I mean, there are plenty of like groups and programs for you know cooks, and there's a lot of organizations. I mean, I had on the podcast recently my one of my previous chefs. He's helping start this um, nonprofit to kind of be a support for cooks in the Buffalo area where I'm from. Cool. Um, but it's definitely difficult, especially for standalone restaurants or, you know, independent restaurants to, or like a group that has like one or two restaurants that's just starting out to kind of have that structure for their cooks. And, you know, I, it's a challenging industry in itself. So, I mean, it's really cool to hear that you're kind of working towards those issues. But you know, what's sad is I feel like I'm, I'm just like coming to dead ends so much. Like I've been working for probably two years to try to work on health insurance for my people. And what I've learned, I've talked to like, we have a health insurance, you know, someone who works for the marketplace who like advises me and our accountant and our bookkeeper. And we've all been through this so many times. And what I've learned is it would take, it would cost me $600 a month per employee to provide health insurance. And I, when wow. I have like, 35 employees when it's when, during our like busy chocolate time. Um, and what I'm trying to do now is find a good legal, sensible way to subsidize my um, employees' health insurance, which I don't have a ton of employees who aren't on their parents' health insurance, um, which yeah. also speaks to the kind of jobs that I'm providing. And, you know, as much as I want to support college students and people in their twenties, I want people to grow with me 
as they age out of their parents' health insurance and not have to quit to, you know, work in an office. Um, so I'm trying to like support those employees and even that just subsidizing their health insurance, which we're doing starting like this month, um, just that has been such a pickle for my accountant to figure out the best way. It's so wild because we're in this situation where the easiest thing to do seems to be to just pay people more as a way to subsidize their health insurance. But then that of course makes their health insurance the next year go up because then they're making more. So, so it's so ridiculous. And all I have to say is Bernie 2020. (laughs) It's it's wild. And I'm, I'm just amazed that my life used to be just, you know, wearing clogs and rolling truffles all day. And now I'm just like pouring through health insurance documents. It's so bizarre, but I kind of love it. I love the challenge of, you know, every day is a new, uh, a new wild ride. (laughs) Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, it's interesting. I don't think this is a topic that we've really touched upon on the podcast. You know, this 75 episodes in, and this is the first time I think anyone's really brought up the, uh, the struggles of actually providing that type of uh, care for your employees. I mean, you seem very interested in it and excited about it. Was it, do you think that like, I guess how big do you want to grow your business? Like, do you have, like, what's your plan for the next couple of years in terms of, you know, not only employee benefits, but also like other locations or how big you would like it to become? Man, I think about this all the time because I'm, I am embarking on this renovation or expansion project, which I'm not quite ready to talk about, but it's very exciting. Um, I do think that like, because of my like activist background, I have this very anti-capitalist viewpoint. And I know that what capitalism does is it traps every small business into thinking, oh, if I'm just a little bigger, everything will be great. And I really think that that's where a lot of businesses go off track. And I don't want to get trapped in that, but I am trapped in it, you know, because I can see, oh, if we made a little more profit, we could raise everyone's wages this much, you know, and we could do this next goal and we could buy this next piece of equipment and we could, you know, do things in a little more ethical way and blah, blah, blah. And I know that that's, you know, that's how they get (laughs) you. But I am trying to do that in a way that's responsible and that doesn't lead to, like, my goal is not to be in Whole Foods, you know? It's not to be in, like, for our chocolates to be in every store in America. I think I just want to grow our um, website shipping program because that's, like, we do that really well. Um, And we're in a small town, so we can't really grow our, like, in-store sales that much. Um, and kind of work on wholesale and having more wholesale, um, customers, but not like I draw the line at like distribution because I feel like I've seen so many small businesses that I know. Um, and I'm friends with someone who had a a huge, um, vegan business that basically closed because once she got distribution and started, um, you know, the distributors pay you so little for your product and you think you'll make it up in volume, but you know, if that all depends on if your products can be made with really low labor costs, which mine can't ever. Um, so I don't know, it's, it's a difficult dance. And I feel like that that's where my lines are is like, I don't want to be in whole foods. I don't want United natural foods to carry us. Um, cause I've had meetings with both of those companies and they basically been like, I mean, this was like 10 years ago, but they've basically been like, yeah, if you can just like cut your prop, you know, cut your, your cost that you sell to, to us in like quarters, then we'll buy from you. And I'm like, 
okay, that's less than it cost me to make them. So I'm <laughs> not going to do that. Um, you know, and I think that's where a lot of companies are like, okay, well, how can we cut corners? And I totally get that. But with the chocolate industry, like you can't really cut corners because then you're getting into the ethical problems that, um, that are all around. So, well, one really quick thing I meant to say about like the ethics of chocolate. Um, if like chefs who listen to the show are kind of wondering like what they can do to, um, to, to buy good chocolate or to ask like they're, they're, you know, purchasing people to buy good chocolate. It really is true that the, for the most part, the more, the more expensive chocolate is, the better the ethics will be. It's like, that's not always true for everything in the food world, but you know, even like Valrona, like I, I don't personally buy from Valrona, although I do buy things, all my chocolate is from a company owned by Valrona. Um, but I do think they're, they're making a lot of great strides and I've read their whole, like a couple of weeks ago, I read their whole like, um, transparency sourcing, um, booklet and they're, they're doing better than they ever have. And all the like kind of big companies, um, and not big companies like Hershey, I mean like big, um, like gourmet companies, you know, like Calibo or whatever, um, are doing a lot more ethical, great things than they ever have. Um, so, but yeah, but it's worth like reaching out to them and all these companies have, um, materials that they can send you. If you're like, Oh, my customers are asking about the ethics of our chocolate, your buyer, you know, will send you, um, like the, the, your distribution person will send you like all this info. So do it. (laughs) Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that because that definitely is good information to have. Um, I do know that uh, we're running down on time. I do want to ask you for any, uh, cook out there or chef who, listening to this obviously and is getting inspired to kind of make this change what do you think the i guess and maybe say they're working somewhere where they don't really feel like they're um i guess working with ethically sourced chocolate what's your advice to someone in terms of kind of finding i feel like just like the options are so limited for like so like obviously they can go work for you but maybe they live on the other side of the country like yeah what like where I guess where do you see the industry going where cooks who feel this way can kind of have a space where they can go and create and have this like idea in their head that what they're using is ethically sourced? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think for me, it was just owning my own business because I, I, you know, I knew that that's how I wanted to like express my values. But that is not an option open to everyone, and it is definitely the hardest path you can be on. So, um, I wonder like the average. I think that the way to, um, to like, um, mention this to like, if you're a line cook, you know, mentioning it to your chef, mentioning it to your manager, um, and trying to hopefully work in a place where those people listen to you, um, and trying to, to posit it as a marketing angle, you know, like I've really found that for me when I've kind of like gone off and posted about something because I was all hyped up about some political thing, any kind of business consultant would have said, keep your politics out of your business. But I've never done that. And what I found is that that has drawn people to my business who are much, much more loyal to me than to a traditional chocolate company because they know that, you know, I'm thinking about these things and our whole crew is thinking about these things. So I think that like it can be a real marketing angle to be like, hey, FYI, here, you know, here's an Instagram post about our new chocolate dish and it uses chocolate that we feel really good about. Um, And hopefully, you know, if you're running a food business, like, you have to engage with these, whether you know it or not, you're being political with the, the ingredients that you're buying. So if you can kind of use that to your advantage and show your customers that um, you're trying to 
do good things, I feel like that's the future of the industry because people are, you know, a lot of customers are asking more questions and, um, yeah, just kind of trying to, trying to get those things in there and do what you can. Okay. Awesome. Um, is there anything else you want to kind of go over in terms of ethics of chocolate or, um, or I guess, is there any last thing you would like to say on it? Oh, um, I don't know. I mean, I'm really, I am, except for, you know, like coronavirus and everything else happening in the world, I'm pretty excited for the future of the food world because mm-hmm. I think there's more, um, big name chefs working on like making, just working on fairness and equity and, and I don't know, like ecology and just improving our really, really broken food system all the time. So there's so many opportunities out there and it's really, it's really great to see. So yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, me too. Definitely. And, um, I don't, I just find it very interesting, um, talk with talking to you, the idea of you as a business owner and being the leader of, you know, 35 to 40 cooks and, you know, whoever else may be working with your businesses that you really do care and that you really like this, thought is continuously with you and it's actually a goal you should strive for like i said i'm not saying this isn't a goal anyone else should not strive for but like this is the first time i've ever really talked to someone in a while who's just been like oh i'm like this is what i'm excited about now like instead of like a recipe you're excited about providing healthcare for your employees i think that's really cool yeah i mean i think that's partially because i've kind of like grown up a little more and i'm i mean i'm still excited about recipes i miss that excitement about like oh i want to learn how to make you know blah blah blah. but i will say that like i'm just thinking about like my employees listening to this and it's so funny like even though you're saying that and that's really great to hear i still really want to be honest about the fact that like i'm not paying a living wage to like almost all my employees you know and it's the system is so broken that even someone you know i i do like I do think it's great that I'm trying and I'm working on these things, but I don't want to be like, I'm doing a great job, you know, because I, it is just like, I have to increase sales and make more profit so that I can pay a living wage. And it's really, I don't know, like for me, I'm always trying to check myself of like, all right, what does this actually mean in the real world? You know? And when I look at what I pay my employees, I'm like, this, it still sucks, you know, and I'm trying so hard. So I don't know, but I guess my ending note is the food world is terrible. (laughs) (laughs) No, but you're, you're, (laughs) you're making active strides though to make it better. And I think that's the most important thing. I mean, you don't change it overnight and especially with an industry that's so rooted in the past. I I don't know. I, I think what you're doing is definitely more beneficial than what a lot are doing. So I hope so. Yeah. Well, it's it's great to talk about it. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. Um, So, you know, I end all my episodes kind of the same way with the same question. Um, Now that you've been on the podcast, uh, what does it mean for you to be a part of the Line Cook Nation? It's what I call the followers of the podcast, the Instagram, just a group of chefs, cooks, people in the food industry trying to connect with one another. Ooh, um, I think for me, it means trying to always analyze my choices and push myself. I mean, the whole thing of being a line cook is pushing yourself to work harder tomorrow than you did today. And for me, it's about doing that in terms of the ethics and the, like the deep way I'm running the business in terms of like sustainability. So yeah. Very awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I had a blast talking to you and I really think you having a a podcast on this or, you know, maybe some Instagram videos or would be really cool. I mean, I definitely would watch it and I think it would uh, educate a lot of cooks. So yeah, definitely. Yeah. Thanks for the inspiration. Cool. (laughs) Awesome. All right. So there you have it. The interview with Augusta Yearwood. Thank you all so much for listening. And as always, um, 
you know, it just means so much for everyone to uh, go ahead and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen to the podcast. But like I said, thank you all so much, and we'll see you next week.